Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our true and living God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Uh, and as you speak to us, it is food for our soul and renews our mind. So, Father, we pray that uh, you would work tonight for our good. Please comfort, grow, and change us. And please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and truthfully as I should. Work for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as some of you will know, before vocational ministry and Bible college, uh, I worked as a chef. Uh, it was long hours, hard work, and extremely stressful. Uh, over the years, this, str uh, this stress resulted in a range of issues for me, uh, but most of all, sleeplessness. Uh, many nights lying in bed, I'd be processing what I'd be doing the next morning, what food, what recipes, what order, and so on. Uh, this would even extend into strange dreams, and even one night finding myself sitting up in bed while asleep trying to make mashed potato, passing it through a drum sieve as was our practice. Uh, now, I hope uh, and doubt that many of you have not had this specific situation, but you can relate. Uh, given the huge array of memes on this subject, it seems that tossing and turning in bed, unable to switch off our mind, is a common experience. Whether it's recounting a stressful day that we've had, or processing what we anticipate to be an extremely stressful day and all the things that could go wrong tomorrow. Stress is common for most of us. Uh, in a 2016 survey, 75% of Australians said not only is stress a daily occurrence, but that it affected their physical health. And how do Australians deal with their stress? A staggering 86% said TV and movies, and less than half of those surveyed were actually willing to ask for help. According to Beyond Blue, more than one in four Australians aged 16 to 85 have experienced an anxiety disorder and their statistics are 12 years old and I don't think it's gone down. And so as I look at those numbers and reflect on our current experience in the coronavirus pandemic, I think there's probably a lot of stressed out, anxious people and lots of sleepless nights. Well, enter Psalm 4. Uh, I imagine a fairly unknown psalm, and even for me, I've read many times, but never really given it much thought. Uh, in fact, so unloved is this psalm that I bought a commentary on psalms, and this psalm wasn't even addressed in the book. Uh, but in this psalm, we find our exact situation. Psalm 4 is often called an evening prayer, because as verse 8 tells us, we find David finally able to get some good sleep. Uh, and having processed his distress. Uh, and it's an evening prayer that seems to be a complement to Psalm 3, which is called a morning prayer, according to verse 5. And its connection with Psalm 3 is probably worth noting. Uh, both are Psalms of David. Both have themes of sleep, uh, themes of what many are saying or doing, a concern for glory or honour, and the major focus that God answers the prayers of his people. And I commend reading Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 together and even bracketing your day morning and evening with them. Uh, and this really is, I think, a great psalm for us, as David moves from anguish in verse 1 to sleep in verse 8. And like so many of the psalms, although not Psalm 88 like we heard last week, Psalm 4 is a unit with this beautiful movement from anguish to peace. 
uh, and it's preserved for us to teach and to guide us. And so in these opening verses, David begins with his prayer, verses 1 and 2, crying out to God. He says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Uh, Straight away, we get a sense of David's passion and grief in this prayer. It's heartfelt and genuine. But as he cries to God and pleads with him to hear and answer him, David gives us his basis for prayer. And I think there's four. Firstly, David cries to his God. This is the prayer of an overflow of personal relationship with God. You know, this is not the robotic prayer of a man who just wants the genie to grant his wishes. David cries to the God who knows. And secondly, his prayer is based on God's character. He cries to the God who is righteous. You know, this is not God obligated to do anything for us. Yet God's righteousness is expressed through his promises to his people. And so although God is not obligated and we're far from deserving, God is faithful to his people, to hear and to answer us. And so prayer is the privilege of those who God knows and God has brought into covenant relationship with himself, who now know him as the righteous God. Thirdly, David prays because of what God has done before Uh, The second sentence of verse 1 is a request in the NIV, but it's probably better understood as a statement of fact, as in the ESV. David is recalling, remembering what God has done for him. You have given me relief when I was in distress. God is in the business of hearing and answering prayer, and David knows this. He has experienced it before, and it motivates him, it prompts him to cry out to God to hear and answer now. And then fourthly, the basis for prayer is grace. God is a God of grace. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And notice how David has this beautiful mix of confidence with humility, anticipation without presumption. A David is crying to the God he knows personally, whose character is good, who has a track record of faithfulness and is the God of grace. And so as David cries out to God for relief in his distress, he begins by pondering God himself. As one commentator said, David shows us that prayer is worship that is both intelligent and desperate. And what David models here should be so true of us who know God through Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 4, speaking about Jesus, says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us, in our time of need. God has brought us to know him, clearly demonstrated his character and promised to hear our prayers. How foolish is it then that so often prayer is our last resort and consumed simply by demands of God as if he doesn't know and doesn't care. 
And so David cries out to God in distress, and we are given insight into his context. Uh, David feels completely trapped, squeezed in, under pressure. Uh, That word for relief in verse 1, as the NRSV brings out, it's literally about being given room. He's stressed out, under pressure, got the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's He's anxious, almost claustrophobic. And I think this is something most of us can relate to. It's a feeling that we often have. And David longs, he prays that God would give him room to breathe almost. And in verse 2, we're given a sense of why that's the case, as David addresses a certain group. Verse 2, O men, how long shall my honour be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David's stress and anxiety in part has been caused by those he lives amongst. Uh, The ESV footnote tells us that the men he is addressing, they are men of rank, prominent people, perhaps leaders in Israel, whether government or at the temple, and they're treating David with a level of suspicion and contempt. And he says his honour is being turned to shame. They discredit him. They slander him. And because of their high standing in the community, his reputation is tarnished. And he is completely distressed by it. And it might even be that this is happening to David because of his trust in God especially. Uh, David says his honour, or more literally his glory, is being shamed. But if you look back at Psalm 3, David says that the Lord himself is his glory. And so it might be that David is being shamed and treated differently in his community because he is faithful to God. He's at odds with his culture. And we see this as David continues. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Uh, David lives in a community, he lives amongst people who have completely different values and a completely different worldview. Uh, and it might be that Israel has some, uh, be, might be in a particularly difficult situation. If you look at verse 6, we see that people are searching for someone or something to provide for them. Uh, David mentions then grain and wine in verse 7. And, and it might be that Israel is in a drought or some food shortage and it's making people desperate. Uh, And as David both models and promotes faithfulness to God as the king, he's ridiculed and shamed for it. And I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of relatable, isn't it? David's world is ours. Part of his agony has been caused by living amongst people who have a completely different worldview and value, and it leads them to treat him and view him differently. Isn't that kind of like being a Christian in Australia? A culture that loves vain words and seeks after lies? The idea is that that, that people are searching for meaning and for answers to their situation by going anywhere and everywhere other than the true God. Hence the NIV's translation that they love delusions and seek false gods. This is a culture saturated in idolatry that ridicules any notion of faith, Kind of like a country that scoffs at a prime minister who prays and goes to church, that wants religion out of their schools and out of the community life. And I'm sure many of us have experienced this kind of humiliation, the mockery, the isolation, even abuse from family, friends and colleagues. 
And so what David says and prays in this psalm is for us. And there is a really helpful ambiguity about this psalm. Uh, A specific event or situation for the psalm isn't given. Uh, In Psalm 3, we're told specifically that uh, it's written when David was fleeing his son Absalom, and people like to speculate or suggest that maybe that's the same for Psalm 4, but we're not told. But what we are told is actually more helpful. The heading of the psalm, and we need to remember that those headings are not added uh, by translators, they're part of the psalm. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. David's words were used in the temple as part of corporate worship. And so this psalm was actually given. It's a model. It's a guide so that we too can move from distress to peace. Uh, We don't need to be like David being chased by our son who wants our throne for this psalm to be relevant or helpful. Because notice that as David prays in verse 1, He then moves to address people in verses 2 to 5, then returns to praying to God in verses 6 to 8. And the ambiguity kind of continues in those middle verses. You know, David begins praying in verse 1, and he addresses certain men who are shaming him in verse 2, but then he kind of gives counsel or advice in verses 3 to 5, but it's not kind of totally clear who he's talking to. Is the counsel what he says for those who are rejecting David and God? And now some suggest that each verse even has its own group of people. So, you know, verses 2 to 3, that's for those who oppose David. Then verses 4 to 5 are those who support him. Or maybe, like the psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 42, David is just speaking out loud to counsel himself. And so, what's the answer? Well, I think it's yes. The ambiguity is so helpful because it reminds us, like the heading of the psalm suggests, that this is a psalm for God's people. Uh, And the psalm is given to correct our thinking, direct our discipleship, increase our faith, and especially to give us peace. And so as we listen to David in his distress, We will be delivered from false pursuits that will further our agony as we too go through stress and anxiety. This is a psalm for us. And just as we heard in that second reading from Annie, Paul quotes verse 4 of this psalm in Ephesians 4 to instruct Christians how to live as God's people. And so, how should we respond? How should we deal with being under pressure, stressed out and anxious? Well, David tells us what we need to know, what we need to be, and what we need to offer. So firstly, look at Psalm 4, verse 3 with me, what we need to know. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, if David has in mind those who are rejecting him and opposing God, the point is pretty clear. God rules. And you need to repent and to know that it's God who decides who is king and who must be acknowledged. And this point is still very relevant today. If you're not yet a Christian watching, checking in with us, this psalm is calling you to respond to Jesus, who by his death and resurrection has been proven to be king of kings and lord of lords. Know that he rules and turn to him. But verse 3 also has, I think, profound instruction 
for those within God's community who face dishonour and shame. How shall we respond? Well, we need to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The godly, or the faithful as the NIV has it, are those who have received God's love, are now part of his covenant community, and are transformed to show love to others. The faithful have been set apart by God. They are his people with unique access because he hears their prayers. And David says we need to let God's word, his opinion, reign supreme. We might be mocked, humiliated, slandered and shamed, but we are set apart, welcomed, loved by God himself. Your greatest weapon against slander is to remember what God thinks of you, to hold on what he has done to you and for you what he says about you. And it can, it can be so debilitating, I think, to be shamed and humiliated by others. But it's also actually exhausting to ground your honour and identity in what others think. People might be impressed when you got your job or promotion, a new car or bought a house. But let's be honest, they quickly forget and it can all be taken away by a global pandemic or an email with that horrible word, you've been made redundant. And your friends, they might adore you. They might have their whole world revolve around you, but they might get other friends. Or worse, they might get married and have kids and become so preoccupied that it's as if they've forgotten you completely. What is popular, fashionable and on trend is constantly changing. And to pursue the approval of others as the ground for your identity is exhausting, like chasing after the wind. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, do you treasure your identity, who you are in Christ? Do you strive to remember it, enjoy it? It's why Paul in Ephesians 3, uh, in Ephesians spends three chapters unpacking and explaining who you are, what God has done for you and to you before telling you anything you need to do. And so whose opinion are you valuing? Who are you giving the most time to to let influence you? God says in Isaiah 43, This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Few things will give you more relief in stress than to know who you are in Christ. Then in verse 4, David moves from what we need to know to what we must be. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Uh, When attacked, stressed, anxious and under pressure, anger usually follows. Uh, David may have in mind here those who are loyal to him and are angry about how he's being treated. Or it might even be he's speaking to himself. Verse 4 helpfully shows us that anger can be a right response. We should rightly be angry at injustice and when God or his people or his name are shamed and scorned. And helpfully, anger here is not to be repressed or ignored, but controlled. Uh, Paul directly takes this verse and applies it to Christians in Ephesians 4. 
And he says we need to deal rightly with our anger. And notice the command to be angry actually tells us that not all anger is sinful, but it can easily lead to sin. And David addresses what I think we know. So often our anger leads us to lash out. Anger enables our selfishness to be self-righteous and to self-pity, to be vindictive or passive-aggressive in our treatment of others. To put it simply, anger easily leads us to sin. And so, how do we deal with our anger? How do we honour God in our anger and not sin? Well, David tells us we need to slow down, calm down and pipe down. Uh, Rather than act out, we need to reflect. He tells us, ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. It's often, isn't it, as we head to bed that our minds come alive. Uh, And rather than presume all of our thinking about a situation or a person or a course of action is automatically right, this is a call to reflect and self-examination. We must reflect and be silent. I'm sure you've heard of him, Harry Truman. He's the 33rd US president. Uh, He became president in 1945, and he took on a heavy burden following the death of Roosevelt. Uh, He plunged himself into work at the expense of his marriage. Uh, When returning home to Missouri from Washington for Christmas, he was greeted by his wife with the words, I guess you couldn't think of any more reasons to stay away. As far as I'm concerned, you might as well stayed in Washington. Uh, And he says his Christmas was downhill from there. When Truman returned to Washington on December 27, he penned a letter in rage and mailed it by special delivery that night to his wife. The next morning, he woke and urgently called his daughter Margaret and instructed her to go down to the post office to receive the letter and tells her, It is an angry letter. I don't want her to see it. Burn it. Anger often leads to loose words that we regret, that hurt others, and often make things worse. And even though when Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians, he doesn't include this part, he actually still addresses the mouth. You heard it in the reading, Ephesians 4, verse 25. He quotes the psalm and says, deal with your anger. And then he says, watch your mouth. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so David says we respond rightly to our anger with self-examination and silence. And as we do that, we won't be consumed by vengeance or self-indication, pausing, and reflecting prevents sin by drawing us away from ourself and to look at what God says. That's why Paul, uh, that's what he's urging for in Ephesians 4 verse 29. He says, don't let anger influence your speech, but grace. Speak words that will build up others and honor God. And that's where David goes in verse 5 and his third response. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. As our focus is drawn away from ourselves and onto God, we gain true perspective of what we should be doing and what is good for us, regardless of our circumstances, 
which is to trust our God and obey him. Now, this is not suggesting that we just have to suck it up and God's not, God's not interested in how we're going or how we're feeling. He just wants us to get on with it. David says in Psalm 51 that his sacrifice is a broken spirit and a contrite heart that God will not despise. Our sacrifices and trust are about drawing near to God, not away from him. The language of sacrifice is about God's promises. It's language of atonement and forgiveness. And so what could be better for us to do in our stress, in our anxiety, and especially in our anger, to stop drawing on our circumstances and gaze at our God who is gracious? To remember, as Paul says in Romans 8, that if God has given us his Son, we can be absolutely sure that he will not withhold any good from us. That he is always with us and for us, that he's working for our good. And we have no reason to stop trusting him or living his way. Because as we are drawn back to God in trust and obedience, we find true perspective and peace. In verse 6, David now turns back to God in prayer with renewed focus and joy. And David has changed, but those around him have not. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Now, if there was a verse that uh, adequately summarized what our society is saying and doing right now, I think it's this one. Uh, as we saw earlier, it probably seems that in Israel they're facing drought or famine or some hardship and it's causing people to long for relief. Uh, and it's left people searching for hope and provision. Who will show us some good? And isn't that most of our world right now? As the coronavirus continues to spread and the death toll rises, restrictions are still in force and there's no footy Many are still searching for hope and relief. And who shall we trust? The government? Medical experts? A vaccine? In a sense, the virus has stripped away so much of our self-confidence that this question is still on the lips of many. And Psalm 4 shows us that this is not a new question. And David actually answers the question by praying. Not for himself, but for all. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. As many long for better days, grain and wine, David longs for God himself. Using the words of Numbers 25, he prays that God would bless them by lifting up the light of his face. He's praying that he and others would see God clearly for who he is, what he has done, what he is still doing, and then they would see the world through that lens. And he prays this so they will not have the temporary joy of a good crop, but the eternal and lasting joy of knowing God himself. As C.S. Lewis puts it, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. 
There is no such thing. And David is so captured by this reality that he can pray and long for blessing on all people, even those who are causing his stress and shame. So full of joy that God alone gives that he can now get some sleep. Verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so the psalm is complete. From distress to sleep at last. And it's such a sweet ending, right? A classic Disney tale. Happily ever after. Until you stop and actually think about it. There's no suggestion that Israel took David's advice. No hint that the shame and humiliation just disappeared because David wanted it to or prayed. We have to be clear that in verse 8, this peace is not from calm and nice circumstances, but from God himself. This is peace in distress. In fact, David didn't even ask God to change his circumstances. But what we find as the psalm ends is that David himself has changed. So how did he get some sleep? Well, he prays to God. He calls all people to respond rightly to God, to orient their whole life around God, to see the world through the lens of who God is and what he's done, and then he has peace. His circumstances have caused him to cry to God and to gaze upon God so that he might rest in God. And the same is true for us. Uh, Jesus says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace in trouble. And I think this is so important for us to hear because how often are our prayers purely consumed by asking God to change our circumstances, but not us? Prayer is not about bending God's will to ours, but ours to his. And what David shows us is not meant to be unique. Uh, Ralph Davis, one of the commentators I've been reading, he says, don't think this is unusually heroic or utterly unreal. It's just what happens to the helpless believers who throw themselves upon the God who keeps them. And so, how's your sleep? How are you dealing with your stress and anxiety? Our Psalm 4 is not some magic formula that if you're anxiously tossing and turning in bed and utter these words, the head hits the pillow. It's not some magic formula, but a model of constantly turning to God morning and evening to be brought back to reality and to find peace. And verse 8, I think, is particularly beautiful for us as we live this side of the cross. Uh, in the New Testament, we find that in light of Jesus' victory over death and the promise of resurrection for us as we trust him, death is now described as sleep. And if we can trust our risen Lord Jesus in the face of death, then we can certainly find peace as we cling to him in our stress. Lasting peace is found in Jesus alone. And so like David, we must cry out to him, gaze on him and live for him. 
It's why almost every letter in the New Testament that expounds Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means for us to trust and to follow him begins or ends or both with the words, Peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the peace of good health or a vaccine, but the peace of knowing God who rules the world and who knows you and loves you. And so, what about you? We live in a world that opposes Jesus and at the very least is sceptical or suspicious of those who follow him. As Jesus promised, in this world we will have trouble, stress, anxiety and grief. How have you responded? Have you been totally consumed with a longing for change in your circumstances or thrown yourself upon God to find peace in any circumstance? We gain peace as we know Jesus, as we listen to him and have our minds renewed by him and as we orient our whole life around him. And so it's worth asking if the coronavirus has actually done that for you. I thought Neil captured this idea beautifully in his recent email about the restrictions. Uh, he says this, Any relaxation they decide on will be greeted with joy by many, even if some are still committed to maintaining full restrictions. Yet, self-congratulatory joy will be premature if we have not engaged with God in our response to the virus. In fact, it will mean that we have missed the opportunity the virus gives us to get right with God by repentance and faith. Many in David's day and in our own are asking, who will show us some good? Psalm 4 and the Gospel are very clear that there is only one answer that satisfies, Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Listen to him, gaze upon his saving work and his promises, cry out to him and find peace. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. Please give us peace in distress. Thank you that you're the God who hears us and who gives us peace. Peace that lasts forever and is not dependent on our circumstances. Please teach us to rest in you, to respond to our stress and anxiety and our anger with prayer, true perspective and obedience. Thank you that in Christ you make us dwell in safety, that not even death can separate us from your love. Renew our trust in him now, we pray and make it our joy to daily cry out to you and find peace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.